We're delighted to welcome everyone to the first of our NHS Scotland Global Citizenship podcasts. These podcasts are an opportunity to celebrate the spirit of local and global citizenship. While over the past year so much has changed with the COVID pandemic, what hasn't changed is the commitment that Scotland has as a people to each other and to our global community. And in this first podcast, we are so pleased to be able to bring together the winner and finalists of the Scottish Health Awards for Global Citizenship. I'm Liz Grant, I'm one of the professors of global health at Edinburgh University, and I'm a member of the Scottish Government's NHS Global Citizenship Advisory Board. And with me are the wonderful winner, Mary Colley. Mary is a consultant colorectal surgeon in NHS Lothian. Her work is in fistula repair surgery in Uganda through the charity that Barry set up called Uganda Childbirth Injury Fund. And also our two finalists from NHS Tayside, Jean McCaskill. Jean is a consultant breast surgeon who works with colleagues to reduce the significant morbidity and mortality of breast cancer in Palestine through medical aid for Palestinians. And Sonali Tarfadar. Sonali is a consultant ophthalmologist who's been volunteering to deliver eye care in rural Ethiopia. And also joining the conversation to chat with Barry, Jane and Sonali are Nelson Kennedy, one of the Associate Directors for Digital Service and Quality Improvement in NHS National Services Scotland, and two of our most recent graduates, Ilian Marshall from the Nursing School at Edinburgh University and Katrina Grant from the Medical School at the University of Dundee. Before we go further, I'm going to ask Nelson Kennedy from the NHS to describe the format of this podcast. Thank you, Rhys, and thank you everyone who has joined us this evening. Really delighted that we can all be together to share our experiences, our passion, and more importantly, our focus on global citizenship. This evening, we're going to be covering a number of key questions which will guide our conversation, but it is really a conversation among us friends and colleagues who have a shared passion about global citizenship. So we'll take a starting session which will just give us an insight on each of the three individuals and the work they're involved in, and subsequently we'll do a question and answer session just to understand and get a bit more detail on all the work that they have described to us and which they are going to gratefully share with each and all of us within the global citizenship community in the NHS in Scotland and our partners abroad. So thank you very much and over to you, Rhys, for the first question. So I'm going to ask Mari and then Jane and then Sonali to tell us a little bit each about their work, where they work, the country they work in, uh, the specialty then the team they're working with, who their partners are here in Scotland. So over to you first of all, Vary. Thank you very much. Uh, I hope you can hear me. Yeah, so I am uh, very lucky to be working in Uganda and have been visiting Uganda two or three times a year for about 20 years with a few years off to have my children. <laughs> um, and um, the work we're doing there is uh, looking after uh, women, basically, who've been injured in childbirth. Um, very many women in uh, developing countries or in uh, poorer areas uh, give birth without really any assistance from midwives or doctors and um, can end up, if they survive, can end up with quite um, unpleasant injuries. And these injuries uh, sort of span a number of specialties. They're, they're not pure urology, colorectal, gynae, they kind of uh, encompass everything and they're uh, qu quite uh, difficult to treat surgically for that reason and also uh, difficult to successfully treat uh, in any anyone's hands. Um, we don't really have the expertise anymore of these injuries in, in the UK. Um, although they do happen occasionally, they're not nearly as severe and um, they're, they are uh, quite uncommon. Um, and they really occur because of women being uh, stuck in second stage with the baby stuck. 
and um, which just you know for maybe 24 hours even longer and that just doesn't really happen here people would have an emergency section they would have something to help them whereas these poor girls don't and um the problems they have from the injuries are dreadful they're they're they become really socially ostracised because they're incontinent and they smell and they are thought not to be fit for childbearing anymore and for wifely material. Um, so often it can mean the end of life for them in terms of their opportunities. Most of them are by nature quite rural um, based, so they're often not educated and really being the matriarch of the family, having children, keeping everything going, in a, in a small homestead is what their future is. So for all they've survived, they've kind of lost uh, their future as well as lost their uh, baby. So it's a very emotive uh, area to, to work in. Um, and I think once you once you start working in that field, it becomes absolutely addictive um, in terms of wanting to, to help. Um, and there are um, a number of uh, doctors and surgeons and nurses who are undertaking that, that sort of work in, in Uganda and other countries, but they're just basically overwhelmed. And so in many areas, there's really nobody around um, that can deliver that sort of uh, surgical service. So um, we have been going to visit various hospitals in concert with the doctors there, the nurses there, and now with a, a group of surgeons that quite often join us, um, partly for collaboration, partly for training, and then we basically run a big camp um, whereby we attract people in uh, maybe for a week, two weeks, um, operating all day long, uh, maybe 40 or 50 women per week. And that is a sort of concentration of effort for, of every, for everybody, um, which is excellent for uh, training, for all of us learning and improving and also for focusing the mind and trying to look after those patients because their, their post-op care is also quite complex. So this is the work that we've been doing. Um, we've got our own charity based in the UK, um, Uganda Childbirth Injury Fund, to uh, fund that. And we've been very lucky to attract some funding and help from Fistula Foundation and another, a number of other agencies. Um, and we are hoping to keep on going. That's uh, unfortunately, it's an, an, an ongoing need. Um, so there's no sign at the moment that we will be stopping. I hope that's a succinct summary of what we're doing. <laughs> Mari, thank you. That is so powerful as well. We're going to come back and ask, um, you know, have lots of questions and conversation around this, but thank you. Jean, can I turn to you and ask you for a, a, a description as well of, of your work? Yeah, so um, as I say, I work in NHS Tayside at the moment and I've been a consultant there in breast surgery for about eight years. And for the past three years, so I'm quite new to this, um, I've been volunteering with a charity called Medical Aid for Palestinians. And that's I've been based in the West Bank of the Palestinian occupied territories. Um, I kind of got into it by way of, uh, you know, someone who knows someone. So um, there was an email went round from, it's a pretty close knit community in breast cancer care in Scotland. And uh, Philippa Whitford, who's an SNP MP in Westminster, was, uh, had put around an email looking for volunteers to get involved with a project helping to develop breast cancer services in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and neither of these were places that I had any experience of and had no understanding of the culture and uh, I'd never been to the Middle East, in fact. But um, the project exactly matched my skill set and uh, so I uh, enthusiastically volunteered. Um, so it has subsequently been a steep learning curve for me. Um, the project essentially consists of enabling the partners in the West Bank and Gaza to develop their own breast cancer services. Uh, I've now been to the West Bank uh, on six occasions, um, each time with a multidisciplinary team from the UK, which includes breast cancer surgeons, breast care nurses, breast radiologists, oncologists, and usually a coordinator from Medical Aid for Palestinians, as well as the local Medical Aid for Palestinians team. And I would say the aim with each trip has, has sort of developed as we've been able to see how the needs could be met um, in the local scenario, because there are obviously a large number of challenges within the West Bank and Gaza, which has not least been highlighted given the, the recent events and the upsurge in violence. But just thinking about from the breast cancer patient point of view, 
Um, the current breast cancer survival at five years for a woman who's diagnosed in the West Bank or Gaza is about 40 percent, um, and that's compared with 80 percent in the UK. Uh, there are a number of reasons for this, and very helpfully, there was a United Nations scoping document that had been published just before we got involved with medical aid for Palestinians, which looked at what, what some of the issues were. Um, so these include things like difficulty in accessing treatments, so things like radiotherapy, for example. There's only one unit that does radiotherapy, which is the equivalent of a population the size of Scotland. And the, the site for radiotherapy is in East Jerusalem, which I'm sure most people understand at the moment is not the easiest place to get to. Um, there's also issues around sometimes obtaining permits to be able to travel for treatment. There's also issues around stigma for diagnosis, a bit like how Vary mentioned about the issues that her, her women have encountered, a similar issue around breast cancer, um, and also a lack of public knowledge about breast cancer being a treatable condition, which I think people are increasingly aware of in the UK, but there's not been such public awareness of it. For example, we have celebrities who have had breast cancer and everybody knows they've been okay. And so there's nothing like that where anybody would have come out and said they actually had had breast cancer. So the first trip that we had was really trying to work out where the issues lay in terms of accessing and delivery of the services. And as the trips have developed, they've taken a slightly different form each time. So we've tried to emphasise the importance of streamlining the diagnostic pathway because women will go to a variety of different people in order to obtain a single diagnosis of breast cancer. So trying to streamline the diagnostic pathway. Um, and ultimately what that's meant is that there was a, a need within the north of the West Bank to set up a, a, a breast cancer centre, essentially. So that's that's being set up in Nablus, uh, which is opportunely uh, twinned with Dundee and has been for 40 years. Uh, and the development of that service has allowed us to work with the local surgeons and oncologists and nurses, but also with the Ministry of Health to be able to ensure that the diagnostic and treatment pathways um, are nationalised, so there's a bit of equity of service across the occupied territories. Uh, for me as a surgeon, my role has been part of the multidisciplinary team and sort of stressing that as a, a way to work, uh, but also spending time learning with their surgeons how, how we could make the process for them more streamlined, minimalising the amount of surgery that needs to be performed. So, for example, traditionally, most patients would have had a mastectomy and all of the lymph glands removed from underneath their arm and that causes quite a lot of complications so um, trying to emphasize performing smaller operations where that's possible um, and we've also been able to host some observerships for a surgeon and a radiologist from the West Bank um, which was a really great opportunity for for shared learning uh, we've not been able to host any GASM doctors so far um, due to issues with permits but I'll maybe talk a bit later about how there might be some opportunities there that maybe we've learned learned during the last year. Again, Jane, thank you so much because uh, you began to give us that sense of what's happening and that real picture of the the need, but also the opportunity to work with colleagues. I'm going to turn to Sonali. Um, for a final snapshot before we start to have a conversation around all that you're, each of you are doing. So Sonali, thank you. Oh, hi, um, so I am currently uh, working at NHST site, but um, my training mainly has been uh, in Glasgow in this country and, um, and a little bit uh, down south in Moorfields. But just to tell you the background, I have also been trained in ophthalmology. My medical school and ophthalmology training initial was in India. So I have a little bit um, uh, of exposure, a variant, variant of exposure, if you like. So when I was training in India, I was actually going to do uh, eye camps where we do cataract surgery and camps, as Mary was telling uh, about her surgery. So I did that as a trainee in India uh, itself, uh, in rural parts of India. So that I did have that background a little bit, but I came here to train then. I trained while 
again is more uh, like chains. Um, so where I was training, one of my trainer was um, involved with this charity. Uh, there are a couple of uh, charities that help us doing these things. So one is um, Fiona Dole and I Fund, and another is Fighting Blindness in Ethiopia. And um, so I just got to word of mouth, got to know about this, and uh, they are always looking for volunteers. They ask you, do you um, actually, do you want to go? And um, and thankfully, my skills from India actually helped because in UK, um, we do a cataract surgery, which takes about 10 minutes to do, but we have really highly sophisticated machines to do that. Uh, whereas when I uh, did my preliminary training in India, we didn't have that. And so is in where I work as my charity is in Ethiopia, they don't have that machine. And so we have we do a slightly different procedure, which is manual without the need for a, you know, hundred thousand pound uh, machine, uh, which you can't afford. Uh, so because I already was trained a little bit in India, so that actually helped. And I was already working in that similar fashion in India. So I said, oh, yes, I my skills again, like tense as much. So I and I also would like to go. And I started in 2012. I've been about four or five times because I was already in training. So I had to take my exams and one year and all that things kind of go made a few gaps there. But um, yes, I've gone to until 2020. Um, we came back on 29th of February 2020, just before the lockdown. So what we do there is um, we do cataract surgery. And cataract is the most common preventable cause of blindness in the world. And nobody, almost nobody goes blind in the Western world with cataract any, anymore because we are so good and so efficient at doing that. We do it, you know, anybody who goes even below the driving standard level, we do their cataract surgeries. Whereas in Ethiopia or a countries, um, uh, developing countries, you have people completely blind with cataract and that affects their lives like they are just completely imprisoned in their home they cannot go anywhere because that and they that is also their earning because you they can't go out they can't work so they are probably they are they were already poor they are going farther and farther down in the poverty line and also the, because they don't have that many um training institute they can't train that many people so all these things kind of compounds and um so Anyway, we go, I usually go once a year uh, with this team and do cataract surgery about, um, we take 10 days, but we operate for six or seven days. We operate about between 250 to 300 cases in those time, in that time, about four or five surgeons. And I think from our perspective is that we, uh, I feel good that it's really, really is needed that help because the next morning, that person has gone from unemployed to be able to do something for their, you know, daily activity or even earning something. Uh, so that's essentially what we do. We can't do anything more than cataract surgery, which is, I'll touch that in the next uh, question, but um, uh, that is that is essentially what we try to do and uh, make some contribution if we can, very little although, but. Thank you, Sonali. Thank you for, for each of you for sharing. Um, and as we come now to discuss um, what you've been doing and, and think about the, the, the pathway, I'm sure everyone who's listening is, is standing back and saying, these are three women who have done special things, who are committed. With, with me tonight, I have um, Nelson, who you've, you've met, but also two others. Um, two medical a medical student katrina grant and a nursing student um elaine marshall and both elaine and, and katrina have just finished their degrees and they're going to also um join in this podcast um to ask questions i'm going to ask actually just before nelson um starts i'm going to ask each of you to in one minute really short to tell me the one thing, the one important thing about how you got from where you were, where you started as a doctor to where you are now. Is there one thing that changed or you feel has made the difference? 
Again, can I start with you, Mary? Um, it is very difficult to say one thing. I mean, I think um, surgery in itself is an amazing uh, thing to be to to be able to do, and and I, that's not just surgery. Medicine also has this feeling that you have a an internationally applicable uh, skill that you've picked up. And I think um, I realised that very strongly. I, I worked for Médecins Sans Frontières for a year. as a, I'd done three years as a reg by then. But even that level of training was, I had so many skills that I almost didn't even know I had um, that I was able to employ. And I think I became very, very grateful for the education and training that I had received. Um, I mean, I don't want to say I'm grateful for all those exams, but actually I probably am. You know, it was uh, it's such a privilege to have been able to to walk that path. And um, it it really um, it really it hammered it home to me at how important it is to to first of all offer your services, but also and and to practice. Um, not only in your home country that's kindly educated and trained you, but uh, elsewhere if possible, and, and to try and share as much of that as you can. Um, so I think that 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 I really have been very aware of the gift, the gift, if you like, of, of training. Thank you. That answers your question. That's, and that's really important, I think, for everyone who's listening, the gift of training. Jane, I'm going to turn to you. So in, in one minute, tell me what has, you know, what's the one big thing or the one important thing in this journey from where you were, when you started as a doctor to now? Again, it's, it's probably not so much one thing as much of a kind of process. Um, and, and it's probably fairly similar to Vary in that I think for me, training in the NHS, because it's a system that's designed and maintained to be efficient, and um, I think it's been really helpful for adapting the way that we do things here to being able to adapt it somewhere else where, you know, there's restrictions, difficulty of movement, um, surgeons not being able to go places to train, uh, patients not being able to travel, and trying to keep things as cost effective as possible. And I think if I trained in a system that was more insurance based, it, it probably would have been a bit more difficult to try and work out how to adapt that. Um, and, and also being in the NHS has also meant that I've been given the opportunity to be able to go away because I've been very fortunate in NHS Tayside where they've given me they've given me time to be able to do that and have really embraced the global citizenship program. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think I think to be honest, just because it's been in the NHS, it's just been an, an immense blessing. That's that's amazing. So the gift of training and the gift of being in Scotland and the and working in the NHS and our global citizenship programme. And Sonali, what would you say? Um, again, uh, probably very hard to say in one thing, uh, because uh, even um, for me, because I have been through in various different processes. But one thing is common. I think I agree with Mary is that this is something medicine is something we learn is has it has got no boundaries no borders and you can cross any border and you will still be useful which is absolutely really really yeah it's a fortunate thing that we have learned that we're really fortunate we can go anywhere and practice this surgery again is um i think for me because i started as a doctor in india and i started training in ophthalmology in india and once you start doing the surgeries and you it's really um, I don't know whether the enlightening is the right word, it's probably not, but uh, you know, it's really, you feel so uplifted when you can see you can help somebody, even if that is just one person. And uh, if uh, when I started seeing that, and then I went to, went to rural India where these facilities were not there, where my medical school was, and I started doing that with my trainers there. And I came back here and I learned in the nature system a more affluent country and I learned uh, more uh, higher skills but I always had that that I would probably like to do that going back somewhere and I, I was fortunate I got the got the opportunity so I think um, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank you. for sharing. Thank you that's really interesting scenario and that's just a passion but I want just to bring things uh, straight back again into the question about 
just the travels and the, the, the experience when you've and the, that opportunity you described so eloquently. Can you tell us just a bit about some of uh, the, you know, one of the challenges which you have picked in your global citizenship work, particularly in Ethiopia? You, Sonari? Yeah. yeah, so um, actually, you know, there are, as you know, there are, starting from the airport here, there are various challenges uh, you have to go through, but that's, you know, overcoming the challenges is a, is a good thing. That's, that's also makes you feel, you know, you have achieved something. Uh, so I'll go through very shortly. There are challenges in two different settings. So I in my my mind is one is uh, logistical there, there are lots of logistical challenges when you are working not in the nhs and in a different country different settings and there are challenges which we feel as clinicians that it is our challenge so the logistical challenge at the, at the beginning every time we used to go there and all our equipments used to get held at the what do you call it um at the airport sorry it's the the words not coming to me, and the airport they, um, they charge you because they think they are impo you are importing things in there. Anyway, they get caught, and then we have to get them released, and it was really really hard because we lo we lost one or two days of surgery for just by doing that. It's no and we didn't like that. Anyway, we got a safe place now, uh, and we leave that in Ethiopia. That's a logistic challenge, but for us, I think as a surgeon, as a clinician, my most biggest challenge whenever I go there is we see other pathologies other than cataract, little babies coming with other pathologies, which if we were here in UK, I can treat that. Whereas I don't have the instruments and things uh, in hand to do that treatment. And I think personally, as a person, that's probably the biggest challenge I face. And this is not the challenge for the team. This is challenge for me as a person. It's just to say, no, I can't do anything, knowing that I could do it, if given the opportunity, given the you know facilities. That's my personal thing. But for a team, now it is most challenge we find is that that we could not. We have so many patients. We and we have little um, limited amount of time and so we really try our best to fit all of them in but so many times we can't because of instrument turnover and things like that and also uh, untreatable pathology or untreatable in that scenario so i think that's that's my challenges at least from my point of view thank you for that honest response really really powerful thank you Thank you so much for, for sharing there, Sonali. It was really um, interesting to hear that. And I'm sure, Jane and Mary, you can kind of resonate with what Sonali said about some of those challenges. Um, so, Jane, I'm really interested to ask you a little bit more specifically about some of the challenges you've faced um, over the years and, and the learning that you've gained and the team has gained in Palestine. Um, as a student, I'm, I'm really keen to know as well, looking back, what would you tell your younger self about how to approach global health work? Um, and global health partnerships. Uh, I think I would say to make the, make the most of your training um, and to be patient, because I think what I realise now is that all the experiences that I had in my general surgical training, and I mean, it took over, I graduated thinking I would do something amazing, travel the world, and it took 17 years before I, I left Scotland. And uh, I think that all over that time, it was incredibly useful for preparing me for having to be very adaptable and and having to cope in a high stress environment. So I think I think I would say that. And also, I agonised a bit about sort of leaving the very general surgery and, and going into breast surgery because I, I was concerned that I then wouldn't be very transferable but whatever skill set one has there will always be a need for that if there's a need within your local community there's probably a need within the global community um, and I mean breast cancer for example is the most common female cancer worldwide so there will always be a need globally for expertise within breast cancer so I think I would say you know to people who are currently students or trainees who are thinking that they'd really like to get involved is, is look for opportunities but also be patient and make the most of, of the training that you have I think for me, it's been really important to feel that I had a set of expertise that I could bring rather than just being sort of quite junior and generically qualified. But 
Um, but I think that was, that was just for me, you know, I needed to be patient and bide my time. And, and then when I, I felt I could really bring something to the table, that's, that's when I had the opportunity to go. That's so encouraging to hear, Jane, as well, just actually how life can surprise you um, in different ways, these opportunities kind of arising um, and to be kind of alert to those happening. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, Jane. Um, and over to you, Elaine, um, to ask some more questions, I think. Thank you. Yeah, that was really great to hear, Jane, especially from also being a recent graduate and for those in the same position, it's really really great to hear someone who's who's got more experience. Um, I've now got a question actually for Ma for Vary. Um, just thinking back to before the COVID-19 pandemic, what were some of the most significant um, moments or encounters in your global health work? And how did these encounters affect your understanding of global citizenship and the approach to your work? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think, um, uh, th there's been an evolution in how we've worked in Uganda um, in that when I first started going there was a little bit of us we went over and we delivered the surgery and then we left again and some of that was uh, because there wasn't anyone to train in the place that we were going but then with time there was someone to train and I think one of the difficulties with fistula surgery is it takes an awful long time to learn um, it's it's got a very long learning curve. It's a, that many of the operations are are quite complex, and some people are actually inoperable when it comes down to it. So you can't. I would say you probably have to go to about ten camps and operate all through each camp with a trainer before you were able to be left on your own, which is a big commitment for people to make, especially um, the indigenous doctors. So it took an awful long time for us to find people that would work with us and would have that uh, long-term commitment. But we have, and uh, we now have a couple of, uh, well, two or three uh, surgeons that we work with very closely um, and a, a sort of tranche of more junior people, some of whom will fall by the wayside, mostly because they get pulled into different areas. But I feel that there's now a whole team of people in Uganda who are coming with us. Um, and that has been massive for us. It's totally changed our approach. We're much more collaborative. We want to help them run a training programme, um, but it's their programme. And um, I think we're, we're more keen to be facilitative of that rather than come in with our own ideas of what has how it should be done. Um, and of course, with everything that's happened in the last year, that's just become so vital because the, 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 the people that are there now are having to, to do whatever work they can. Um, and it's, it's very reassuring to know that they are still able to. So we're, we're still able to fund camps um, not not as many patients because there's fewer surgeons to do it. But we're, the work is carrying on. Um, albeit at a slightly lower uh, le uh, lower level, just not not in terms of difficulty, in terms of numbers. Um, but it's really been that that shift we've really benefited from in the last uh, year. So I'm I'm really grateful for that evolution. Great, that's really great to hear that your work's still continuing and managing to do everything um, despite the pandemic. <laughs> that's really good to hear. Elaine, one thing I should say is that I keep on talking about the surgery, but there's a massive nursing part of this. And um, there are nurse, nurse trainers that come with us. There, there's a big nursing team and there's actually an ongoing nursing teaching program. And it is multidisciplinary from that point of view. You know, the nursing training has become very central to, to what we're doing. I should have made that clear. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think it's it's great to um, have such a diverse approach and have different disciplines involved too. So that's really good to hear. Yeah, yes, th thank you for, for sharing that. And actually, if I can come uh, and, and ask you, Jane, around the multidisciplinary team and how the multidisciplinary team that you work with, how they um, coped during this time of COVID and your response and your reaction and your support um, to the team, even when you couldn't actually physically be there? Yeah, I mean, 
Actually, I was physically, physically there, unlike Sonali, who left on the 29th of February. I, I went on the 29th of February, so I was in uh, Palestine, having been very graciously given a sabbatical from NHS Tayside for a month. So my plan was March 2020, I was going to be in in uh, Palestine, and I, I lasted a week before the first uh, COVID case in Bethlehem and then had to leave. So it had a very immediate impact on the work of the team. Um, what I would say is that the Palestinian people are incredibly resilient and they have continued to manage to build physically an entire breast cancer centre during during COVID. Um, so they've managed to carry on with the building work. Um, we have managed to continue doing some online training and also um, uh, online patient discussion meetings, some multidisciplinary team meetings using uh, Zoom and uh, and Teams. Uh, and I'm sure other online things are available. And uh, what what it's also allowed us to do is, I, I I'm quite hopeful that this will kind of change how we do things because um, one of the things that's happened is that obviously a lot of the conferences have moved to online. Um, so for example, the Association of Breast Surgery um, conference was on last week, and the um, registration free was was fee free for uh, low and middle income country members. So um, unfortunately for our colleagues, the timing of that, because it, it coincided with the outbreak of violence that had just happened. Um, so, but they, it, it, because they'd registered, they can go back and watch that later, you know, and, and have that resource. And I'm, I'm hopeful that can be maintained for the future as well, particularly for healthcare workers in countries who are traveling to conferences and, and coming to do for observerships and so on. It's just not feasible. So I'm quite hopeful that that can kind of change things and change the dynamic for the future. Thanks, Jane, for that. That was that was really helpful. And Nelson, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's really, really insightful, Jane, again, and everyone else for uh, sharing that. But before we, uh, 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 we, we move on to the next point, just interested uh, and having listened to you quite intently, just want to tease out from yourselves, starting with Sonari, what, what's your motivation? What keeps you motivated and how do you you, uh, you've, you know, to, to keep contributing and participating in global citizenship work, as you've described, Sonari, and then Jane, and then Mahiri, please. Yes, I mean, I'm going to quote Mahiri here because I think that the introduction speech she said is quite addictive, and I just was thinking, that's so correct. I mean, this is so, uh, I cannot probably describe it in, in any way. You, um, it's it's just the thing that you we all become doctors uh, to and in inherently somewhere down uh, deep down we all have the thing that we want to help people and that's the reason we first chosen this profession right whether wherever that might be um, whichever country we are we are willing to help people and when we do help people if one two one hundred two hundred and uh, in our in any way that we can with our skills that's really that's really satisfying and when you see that there are uh, people in places like that where there is no facilities and if you can go and do something that means so much to them and you it just I don't know I don't know if I'm I'm projecting it rightly but it's it's something you really want to do not to feel big about it but as I was saying earlier if I see it uh, when we see a few cases that we cannot treat up there. I think the doctors there are the uh, doctors and nurses, I should mention, are the probably the most hard people there. Uh, and actually the patients probably already half knew that this is not going to happen. But I think we are the ones because we really, it just gives you that thing that I really want to do that is an addiction and in a sense, but we probably just like to help people no matter where they are sitting in the world. Thank you. That's really, really powerful. Jane, what what keeps you going? <laughs> I, I would say it's probably changed over time because I think when I first got involved, it was it was really a sort of sense of excitement and an opportunity to challenge myself with, with traveling. But 
I think my nervousness before I went was either being seen about helicoptering in and doing lots of dramatic things um, and then leaving or to be seen as sort of white Westerners coming in and telling people how to do something. So I think both of those have been allayed by firstly the kind of approach that medical aid for Palestinian takes, which is very much to work with the, the partners on the ground to develop a sustainable model of healthcare, but also I would have to say I've been completely humbled by the response of the Palestinian people that we've been partnering alongside. They are, I mentioned it already, but they are the most resilient people I've ever come across. They live in an immensely difficult situation. But I'm really grateful for the opportunity for, for training and coming alongside them. So I would say having initially maybe gone with kind of fairly selfish motives of a bit of excitement, it's, it's the people that I've met that are, are really the reason that I keep going. And uh, like Barry and Sonali, I'm, I'm now hooked. Any final art on that? Uh, what keeps you going? Yeah, um, I think doing surgery, medicine, nursing, it, it is really a pleasure and a privilege wherever you do it and being part of a team and just the, the joy of actually doing something. But I've got to say that I have in my head, I can sort of imagine a whole load of women and often very quite young girls just waiting, waiting for somebody to come and help them. And just having, I feel the pressure of them being there um, and just waiting for help. And I, I want to, I'm, I'm very frustrated at the moment that I can't go. <laughs> Although we're hoping to be able to go in October. But uh, I, I feel, a, I do feel a pressure to try and deliver more surgery for these um, girls. Uh, as, as well as uh, appreciating the, the pure joy of it. Thank you so much. Thank you for that response, all of you. Uh, next one is just from, from yourself. Tell us just a bit about some of the most exciting things you've learned or reflected on as uh, you've listened to your other co-speakers, anything you've picked up. I know already you've, you've shared a bit of commonality there, but any exciting things you've learned from each other? Who wants to go first, Jane? What have you heard from other colleagues in terms of commonality, exciting things? Yeah, I think I think I mean it's like slightly odd that you've got three surgeons, <laughs> three surgeons on at the same time. So yeah, uh, yeah it, it, I think I think there's definitely a sort of common themes that are running through how how we feel about that and and being able that as we say the rewarding thing about surgery is being able to actually physically do something um, and 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 actually being able to feel you you can see a physical dif difference of helping and that for me has been been really encouraging to hear that from other people as well. Thank you. Sonari? I think the one thing I have learned is um, uh, from my colleagues here is that we are, um, I was listening to Mary and, and Jane, it was that they work in a much more, um, you know, wider um, multidisciplinary team for the necessity. In ophthalmology, we are kind of really we are in our own world most of the times, uh, so that is a, that's a very interesting. I would like would actually uh, for team we call our team is our um, our doctors, our nurses, our optometrists, really, but not any very not. I'm not. Uh, I wouldn't say never, but very rarely we need to get to that any other specialty. So I, I thought that would be a very good opportunity if we can ever uh, do anything you know, with other um, specialties one. And the training bit, and I really was here listening to Jen and uh, you know, that they are really um, setting up this online training program, which is probably a bit difficult for us, but not completely impossible. We do try to train one person when we are there for seven days, any ability uh, who's um, even um, remotely trained little bit in surgery, we try to get their skills up, but not as much as uh, maybe in this uh, COVID uh, time that others are doing. So that's quite enlightening, I would say. <laughs> you, Mary, what's the, what's the highlight for you in terms of what you've had from others? Well, I just want to say it's, it's amazing to feel part of the sisterhood of surgery. Well done. <laughs> I just love it, um, and I know that uh, most of the my colleagues are are 
Um, my Ugandan colleagues are men um, in this field, um, but I have a few uh, sister surgeons from America, Norway and the UK. And it's it's such a brilliant thing to meet people who are just like minded and enjoy their work, you know, and are and are up for it. And I, I really felt that today. It's it's really nice to have that feeling of of enthusiasm and uh, you know I, I really appreciate it. And I'm certainly really interested in the the whole online idea. And I think that's something that the Association of Surgeons could, we could look at as well. So I must uh, look into that. Um, so thanks for that tip. Thank you very. <laughs> Thank you very much, Erin. You've been intently listening to the three speakers. What's what's what what have you heard? Well, it was great to hear a short overview of all of your work at the beginning. Um, it sounds like really fantastic work. Um, I agree with the online aspect of it. I think that especially during um, COVID, it's it's really encouraging to hear that work can go ahead despite the pandemic, and sounds like a great opportunity for. Um, addressing some of the challenges that were spoken of about difficulties getting out to certain countries and and having that opportunity to still keep in touch with colleagues um, overseas is through online teaching or uh, platforms is sounds like a fantastic opportunity. Um, it was also great to just hear as well about the reciprocal learning opportunities that you've all had from being part of these projects. Um, I think that's that's really great that it's a give and take situation also and and it was just really great to hear from all of you. And I would just um, echo what you said there Elaine um, about the kind of shared learning. I think the excitement's maybe not necessarily in um, the kind of fast-paced innovation change making which is naturally very exciting but there's excitement in the process of it all um, and the people you meet and the connections and those partnerships are just very special things um, is what I was hearing from all of you um, and I think there's just a, there is a lot of growth um, to be had as a team and, and as individuals which um, I find a very exciting thing and um, from what you guys have said and when this is done well I think you guys have really talked about how this outcome can be very unique and um, can lead to just some really, really exciting work. Um, so that would be the most exciting thing for me, what I've learned today. And thank you very much. So I just want to get to know you a bit more as, as individuals. So uh, in no particular order, starting with Sonari, can you tell us, apart from your travel documents, what's the most important item of choice for you to pack while you go on your travels to Ethiopia? Yeah, well, uh, it's not one actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, apart from my travel documents, I would always pack a torchlight and, and, uh, and some uh, dry food like biscuits and, uh, you know, cereal bars, things like that. So the torchlight, I'll just explain the torchlight, okay? You know the food, but <laughs> torchlight, why it is there? It's because it's very unreliable or unpredictable electricity supply. So torchlight not only helps you, you know, at night in your room, wherever to see things, so because it will be coming and going, your light may be very unpredictable. But we have also with a bigger torchlight we have also operated on because our microscope the little microscopes that we use for surgery the without the electric supply it cannot work so then there's a big torchlight somebody holds from the side and you look through the microscope and you operate and so it's a very essential thing in your bag that's what i say thank you jane what's the most important thing you've taken to the west bank apart from your travel documents. I don't know if, this, if they would consider this important. It's probably not a prime example of Scottish health, but I always have little bags of tablet with me so I can give, of Scottish tablets, so I can give them away as little gifts because people are always sort of giving you gifts and inviting you for meals and being very hospitable. And it, I think just a little bit, a, a little bit Scottish tablet always, uh, always uh, goes down well. <laughs> Thank you very much. And Mary, what have you taken to Kampara, Uganda? Um, well, and we do take uh, gifts and, and a head torch, which is very important. But actually, the thing that is has been really useful, which is not such an exciting thing, but I always have an unlocked phone 
so I can be on the local uh, network and I can make a hotspot. Because I think one of the things is important is to feel independent and be able to manage. And um, uh, that that allows me to be able to manage. Um, so it, there's a bit of, as you'll have noticed from the beginning when I was having some difficulty in joining you, <laughs> I'm not the most technically able, but it makes a huge difference to be to be connected, if you like. Thank you very much. And I'll revert back to Rhys now for uh, some final words. And thank you so much. Back to you, Rhys. Thank you so much, Nelson. And thank you, everyone. You have summarised why global citizenship is important here in Scotland and what it means to you. You all spoke of the gifts of education, of the NHS itself, the gift of teams who have vision. And you also spoke of some of the simple and single things in life that make a difference. You've inspired us all. Thank you and congratulations again on your Global Citizenship Award. The Global Citizenship category of the Health Awards are a key mechanism for recognising the commitment of NHS staff to global health work. And we want to showcase their efforts and those projects nationally across the NHS. Our three panellists have answered lots of questions. And perhaps some of you who are listening to this podcast are wondering how you can be involved. Do get in touch through your NHS Global Champions, which are in every board or through the Scottish Global Health Coordination Unit and share your ideas, support volunteering, tell us about your work. And to all the global citizens in our NHS partnerships, thank you for listening. Over to you, Nelson. And uh, just to finish off on behalf of the Global Citizenship Programme in Scotland and our partners uh, overseas, really want to say again, thank you very much but also more so to encourage each and everyone to uh, engage and get involved uh, in different capacities. Uh, you've had these three fantastic speakers tonight. And we also want to thank uh, all our uh, partners, both within Scottish Government and in the wider NHS family in Scotland. We have a fantastic opportunity to collaborate and work together. Uh, the NHS offers that opportunity and dare I say as a family, of the NHS that we can get together and have the opportunity not to do many, many great things for ourselves and the people of Scotland, but providing that hand of friendship, uh, uh, solidarity and partnership with our friends from every corner of the globe. So thank you very much and I will bring this uh, podcast to a close now. So thank you very much and good evening. <laughs>